Guy Shiraki has worn many hats, both inside and outside the halls of government, but the common denominator is his desire to see Pennsylvania as a better place for kids and schools and for prosperity for all citizens. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I am in Chester County with uh, Guy Shiraki. Guy is the uh, president and CEO of the Chester County Chamber of Business and Industry. Uh, Guy, welcome to Brews and Views. It's nice to be here. Thanks for joining us in Chester County. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Well, uh, you've kind of come to Chester County, a, a circuitous route, uh, having grown up in Philadelphia. Um, and you've worn quite a few hats uh, all across uh, uh, Pennsylvania uh, government, uh, from state government, uh, even some uh, serving time uh, for, as chief of staff to congressman. Um, you can to, refer to it as serving yeah, time. Yes, yeah, <laughs> very good. Uh, but uh, talk about uh, growing up in, uh, you were, grew up in South Philly, correct? Yes. So I, I think the common thread in my career has been uh, advocacy and public service. Uh, and trying to change things that I thought were broken and protect the things I think work well. Uh, in South Philly, I was really drawn in two ways uh, towards this. And the first was, you know, in the outside world, I came of age in the era of, of Ronald Reagan, of President Reagan, and really firsthand experienced the, uh, the malaise and, and even as a young person, understood that people were not feeling good, people were not happy, they didn't feel good about the country. And I could, even as a young person, get the sense that President Reagan brought about this sense of optimism and hope and pride in the country, which I hadn't really experienced. So that drew me to him. But really at the same time, growing up in the city, as I became more aware through local politics and community and neighborhood associations, that my local officials were not really tending to the neighborhood I grew up in. So I started to get involved uh, in that, and those two things really over, overlapped. This uh, as a young kid, you, you started paying in, attention, yeah? I um, worked, started working the polls, I guess, when I was 17, mm -hmm. 18. Um, and um, about 1984, we had at, you know, in the outside world, we had the presidential election. <laughs> Uh, I, be, I helped start a college Republican chapter at St. Joe's University, but at the same time in my neighborhood, my community group formed a home, homeowners association, a neighborhood community association for the first time, and the meeting was held at the public library, and there were about 70 people went to the first meeting, and they were going to pick a board of people. And out of nowhere, one of my lifelong friends stood up and said, this is a great idea, but you need at least one young person on the board, and you should have my friend Guy because he really follows this sort of stuff, and you would be good to have him. And all the old ladies clapped, and I got elected <laughs> to my Civic Association board. So that was really the beginning of those sort of those two tracks of being involved or drawn to uh, politics, but also drawn towards civic involvement in my own neighborhood. Now, was politics uh, a part of your family life? Were your parents involved in uh, politics? I mean, and I, you know, ultimately you're, you become a Republican, you work yeah. for Republicans. Um, was there a point where you said, yeah, this is, uh, uh, this is the party that uh, most represents the values, the, the sure. policies, the politics that I embrace? So my parents weren't really active, although my dad was a, was a, worked at a small savings and loan uh, in South Philly. So he 
new local elected officials, but my parents, to my knowledge, you know, we watched election results uh, on TV, but they didn't strike me as particularly political or apolitical. It was just wasn't something we talked about a lot. Um, I was really drawn to it through school. Uh, and, and again, as I in said, high school or in, in high school, school. Okay. yeah, mm -hmm. in high school. And then, uh, as an interest and, and remember, you know, I'm, I'm a product of growing up, uh, and an era of where we had, you know, Watergate followed by the hostage crisis, followed by president Reagan. So, well, so national politics, world politics was very much in our eyes mm -hmm. as I was coming of age and going through high school. So that draw, drew an interest. And, and then, you know, my, my neighbor Steve sort of thrust me into the spotlight locally. And next thing I was involved in everything from town watch to going to community meetings when we would meet with the neighboring uh, community groups. And important uh, and things like the color of your front door uh, type of things? Uh, or? The, uh, when, when uh, certainly about town watchers about crime, but then we did get into when you would put out the trash because we wanted to keep a certain appeal in the neighborhood and we didn't want people putting out the trash days ahead of time. And you learn that the Civic Association was in charge of knocking on our neighbors' doors, telling them not to put the trash out early. Uh, those weren't necessarily the things that draw, you, that draw you into public policy, but they are the things that teach you about people mm. and interactions and about the way community groups go and the way things get done. Uh, you, you knock on an old lady's door and you find out the reason she puts out her trash early is because she's too old to do it and her son comes by when he can do it and take it out. And you know, so you learn a lot about life when you're 17, 18 years old and you get thrust into your neighborhood community association. So, so you're kind of growing up in South Philly. And of course, the world is really big. You know, the, the far west is Paoli, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and you go all the way. Uh, you run away from home to go to St. Joseph's, right? I mean, right. Uh, and then uh, I, you, you go even further uh, to Villanova uh, <laughs> and earn a law degree. What, uh, uh, so what spurred you to go pursue a law degree? So two reasons. One is my mom told me from the time I was old enough uh, to understand that I was going to be a lawyer. So I wanted to do what my mom told me. <laughs> the second was I was very much interested initially, aside from mom, it was being drawn to wanting to be a prosecutor. Uh, I, again, I think I sort of saw the saw public service as this sort of, you know, again, correcting the things that are broken, getting the bad guys, keeping things, you know, preserving good. And so the practice of law with an eye towards prosecution is what drew me there. Uh, and then over time, as I got into high, I'm sorry, as I got into college and really began taking that pause that I think you do in, in college before you go to graduate school. You say, do I really want to do this? And, and aside from wanting to make mom proud, what I understood by the time I got to be 20 or 21 is that this was about an avenue to be a prosecutor, but understanding the law and how it was crafted and how it impacted people's lives very much fit into what I was learning in college and what was becoming my passion, which was a passion for public policy. And, and so I decided for all those reasons to pursue uh, law school, notwithstanding just the fact that mom had told me from the time I was about seven or eight that I was going to be a lawyer. I decided it really made sense given where, uh, where my interests were. So you uh, end up uh, going to law school, going into private practice, but it wasn't long before you got really sucked into uh, the world of public policy uh, and advocacy. Um, and uh, you served a number of roles, uh, uh, chief of staff to a number of folks right. uh, serving in the state senate, uh, who was Melissa Hart from out in western 
Pennsylvania, kind right. of an interesting dynamic. How did you end up uh, becoming the chief of staff to a, a Pittsburgh area uh, senator? Well, the short answer is, like I say, I, I owe it all to Governor Ridge. Um, <laughs> so uh, I had met Melissa through Young Republicans, and I was active in Philadelphia, and she was active in Allegheny County, along with some other folks like a young Rick Santorum. Mm-hmm. And, and we got to know each other through conferences. Uh, in 1994, then Congressman Tom Ridge decided to run for governor, and there was an opening to run for Congress. At the time, Melissa Hart's chief of staff was a fellow named Phil English. Phil left to go back to Erie to run for Congress. Mm-hmm. Melissa needed a chief of staff, and mutual friends suggested that this somewhat outside of the box, uh, that this uh, attorney from Philadelphia might be good for uh, working for a state senator from suburban Pittsburgh, that we each had strengths, uh, and that uh, her perspective from the West and my perspective from the East might create a good partnership. And so I joined Melissa in 1994 as Phil left to run for uh, the Congress up in Erie, and Phil was successful. Melissa had been elected in 1990, so when I joined her, she was getting ready for her, her first reelection, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of angst because folks may remember she was a surprise winner on election night 1990. Uh, she had beat a longtime incumbent, and nobody saw that coming. And then fortunately for her in 1994, her, her reelection was fairly smooth. Uh, and uh, it was a great, again, a great opportunity for, for somebody that by 1994 had fully embraced public policy, enjoyed the discussion of issues, wanted to learn how laws happened or didn't happen and what the process was. She was great because she was, you know, going to challenge. We had a similar perspective and she was going to challenge things. And frankly, we both learned together. We, we made some successes, but we made some mistakes as well. And it was, uh, it was a good learning process. Well, of course, Melissa went on to run for Congress, spent a number of uh, years uh, in Washington, D.C. But you ended up coming back uh, to Philadelphia. And I think it is at that point uh, when you were working with the uh, Philadelphia um, Archdiocese that uh, we had met, uh, right. working on education uh, issues in, in particular. Um, uh, and I know that uh, that led into other efforts uh, with regard to charter schools, seeing this. What was it about to kind of the education sphere uh, that I know you're, you continue to be passionate about um, that drew you into, uh, you know, fighting in that arena, if you will? Yeah, so uh, to this day, I now serve on the board of directors of the Pennsylvania Coalition of Public Charter Schools, so, which is basically the largest trade association of charter schools, and I serve on their board of directors because it's an issue that I still find uh, near and dear to my heart. I, I like the idea of going to the archdiocese because it, it was sort of the opposite of the legislature. The legislature, you have to work on everything, from, from transportation to housing, roads, schools, regulations, health care. Mm. The Archdiocese gave me a very narrow focus. I was working largely on education issues. That was the heyday of trying to make vouchers a reality, yeah. which in many ways sort of birthed or brought about the, the growth of EITC and tax credits. Uh, during the end of my tenure at the Archdiocese is when the tax credit came into effect and came into reality. Uh, I always saw it as twofold. One is, uh, you know, despite being somebody who was a product of Catholic education, I really did believe in the idea that it was the taxpayer's money. It was the money designed for the child. And it never made sense to me why 
it had ever been allowed to be assumed that it was Harrisburg's money <laughs> and parents had to go to Harrisburg to ask for their own money back to educate their child or why some people would in essence be paying twice, why they would pay four, five, six, seven thousand dollars in property taxes to quote so support the education system, but somehow their kids were in this other thing that wasn't the education system and they'd have to pay twice. But there was another thing. I mean, the reality is having grown up in Philadelphia and being involved in public policy, you knew that there were hundreds, probably the reality is thousands of children in Philadelphia and the area that were just being left behind. And that you needed these alternatives uh, schools. You needed Catholic schools. You needed independent schools because they were they were the islands of safety. They were the lifeboats. They were the safety nets. And anything that would in, endanger those schools, the viability of those schools, had to be addressed. And so school choice was not only about fairness to middle-class families and not making them pay twice. It was about preserving the only institutions that in West Philly, South Philly, Kensington, Southwest Philly were, were saving lives. Mm -hmm. They literally were the difference between whether, whether children had a future or not. So to me, it started as an issue, sort of a public policy interest, yeah. and then fairness, and then it drew me very much to uh, as opportunity and, and uh, you know, the means for these young young boys and girls to go forward. So uh, it forever to this day is still very much a part of who I am because I believe without, without various educational choices, education becomes stagnant and it doesn't become child-centered. And if those kids are forgotten and left behind, it's a moral failing and, and it's an economic failing on all of us. So uh, it's important to me that we do all we can to keep alternative schools viable and thriving so that these kids have a place to go to succeed. Well, and, and for me as well, I, I agree with your, your description and the reason that we are involved in this, um, this effort to expand educational options for kids. Um, my question is, uh, as you've been doing this for decades, right, and pushing for this, uh, when I look back, I, I say, boy, yeah, we've done a lot for kids, but there is so much more that could be done. Particularly, you know, when you look at Philadelphia and you got, you know, what, 50,000 kids on waiting lists for charter schools. Uh, you got about 50,000 plus kids being denied scholarships through the EITC. Um, why, why do you think this has not been sort of that transpartisan, if you will, uh, kind of like what's happened on criminal justice re reform? So it, it's where Democrats and Republicans right. have come together. Why do you think, uh, and I'm asking for myself, because yeah. why, haven't, why hasn't this really uh, exploded, if you will, in terms of the support for, hey, we, we like choices. Well, why aren't we doing more of that in education? The short answer is, is I don't think there's a simple answer. I think part of it has become, unfortunately, in the beginning, when, when there was a serious discussion about school choice and tax credits in Pennsylvania, if you go back to the 80s and 90s, it was always a bipartisan issue, mm. and it was a coalition issue. It, it was working-class families. Uh, it was members of the building trades who were largely sending their kids to Catholic schools or other uh, schools because they just didn't have faith in the public schools in Philadelphia or the surrounding communities. I think what's being done on things like clean slate and criminal justice reform are now the exception, not the norm. Mm. The, the issues where there are people of different parties or even different ideologies that, that agree upon a strategy 
or agree upon a policy, even though they may be approaching it from different avenues, is few and far between. I think, unfortunately, over time, what happened on education is that everybody went back to their safe camps. And the safe camp is there's an education status quo that has billions of dollars and tens of thousands of teachers and a well-funded political action committee. And, and if you will, they, they've all decided to put on the blue jerseys. And everybody supportive of them with blue jerseys has decided to, to wrap their arms around them. So some of the very people or some of the very organizations that 20 years ago hmm. were part of the chorus leading for uh, school choice or leading for tax credits, again, whether they viewed it as fairness or as money belonging to the child or as a way to save kids trapped in bad neighborhoods, they've now sort of gone back to their home team. And they put the blue shirt on and said, well, if we're part of this team, then we need to support this. I think it's largely about, unfortunately, it's about the money and the power. Uh, and I think you see it uh, at hand in Philadelphia. Look, you know, my years of being involved in, in choice and educational movement, you know, with charter schools, you know, the, the fact to it I always say to folks is we have 500 school districts in Pennsylvania. The largest school district in Pennsylvania is Philadelphia. The second largest sort of quote unquote school district is kids in charter schools. Mm -hmm. The third largest school district in Pennsylvania is kids on waiting lists mm -hmm. for charter schools. <laughs> right. The number of children waiting to, who are asking this year, who for the 2019, 2020 year, who asked to go into a charter school but could not go because there's not room, is nearly three times the size of the Pittsburgh school district. I mean, so, so to think about that in your own community, you know, mm -hmm. Pittsburgh's the second largest regular school district. Mm -hmm. Three times as many kids would like to be in a different school and can't be for no other reason than we don't have the spaces. And not because there's not interest among educators or, or teachers, it's because the status quo won't allow the additional schools to open. So I think, unfortunately, we've gone back to battle lines, and it's not been about the kids. And that's interesting, particularly when you look at the history of how school choice began in the city of Milwaukee, uh, Cleveland, right. uh, led by Democrats, uh, right? I mean, right. this and so uh, it, it, it did. It, I hadn't thought of it, how it was really a bipartisan or transpart, however you want to describe right. it. And now it's really become tribal. Now it's uh, become yeah, which is which is unfortunate because there's a lot of kids that uh, are, I mean, middle and in, high in, uh, income, you know, higher middle income, they're able to make choices right, right. by where they move to or being able to afford uh, a private education. And it's really uh, low income families that don't have that mobility uh, that are trapped in schools that aren't working for their kids. Well, and it, it further feeds out, as you know, because it, it has a ramification for our cities. Mm. People want to then leave neighborhoods in Philadelphia, they want to leave Reading, they want to leave York, they want to leave Harrisburg, they want to leave the cities where they view the public education system failing them, which has a detrimental impact to the economy. So mm -hmm. again, not to get too sort of, you know, esoteric, not to get too much into like a college course, but it's not only uh, about education, it's about the economic viability of neighborhoods in Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh, but about the viability of our small cities all across the state. As the education systems have deteriorated, people have left, which has left to vacant buildings and challenges and problems in these cities. So it, it is everybody's issue uh, whether you live there yeah. or not, and, it, and we, all feel, we all feel the effects of it. Unfortunately, it has gone back, it has gone back to this sort of us and them, and it, it's it's very unfortunate because, as I said, we all, we all pay the price every time one of these young men or young women are in a school that doesn't 
do well by them or the, or the young man or young woman drops out. We well, all lose. Uh, it was when you were serving as chief of staff to uh, the lieutenant governor, Jim Cauley, uh, under uh, Tom Corbett as governor, and he had proposed uh, a, a voucher program uh, for low income. Uh, many of these school districts that uh, you would describe that are in these cities that are hollowing out, you know, Harrisburg and York and Reading and uh, certainly Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. Um, I remember having a discussion across the river, Cumberland Valley School District, right? One of these uh, well-to-do that's just across the river from Harrisburg School District where we're spending, you know, upwards of 20000 a kid. Uh, less than half are graduating. Even those that are graduating, we're almost in single digits that are proficient. And making the case across the river, why you need to care what's going on Across, if if right. not for the moral component, the human capital that we're wasting, um, we just look at our welfare system, uh, our correction system, and the strongest common denominator amongst people trapped there uh, is a lack of a good education. So these are things that even if you don't care on the human side, right. uh, your pocketbook ought to care because it's costing us when we're when we're failing here. Well, well, uh, and that, and that and now to come full circle for me, as now as the CEO of the Chester County mm -hmm. Chamber. One of our biggest challenges is workforce development. In the western suburbs of Philadelphia, in, in Montgomery and Chester County, the biggest challenge is there are three to four jobs open for every available person. Hmm. So again, as you're saying, whether you care about education reform to save children for a moral reason, for an academic reason, I will tell you it's now an economic reason. Mm -hmm. and, and whether you live in an area with strong public schools or not, we now don't have enough. So as strong as Chester County's economy is, it could be even stronger if we could fill these roles and we need folks. And every young man or young woman that goes to a school that fails them, where they can't read, they can't problem solve, they can't do math, they're a person who's missing an opportunity to build a career and raise a family in a community like ours. Well, I like your segue there uh, to uh, your current role as the uh, president of the Chamber of Business and Industry in Chester County. Um, for, th for those that don't know uh, about Chester, kind of describe Chester uh, for folks, and then that will help us have some of our, the discussion that I'd like to on, on a policy front, a little bit uh, political, uh, but you've been here since January of 2014, so uh, you've uh, been in this role uh, for some time, yeah. um, and uh, Chester is uh, a booming place uh, in terms of the economy. Um, and so describe Chester a bit, and then let's talk about some of the, the, the political policy shifts that we're seeing happen here. Sure. So uh, I moved here in 1995, and I promise not to recount all the years between 1995 <laughs> and now. But my wife and I moved here in, in 1995, like a lot of folks from the city. We wanted to move the suburbs because, uh, you know, the quality of life uh, that was offered here uh, instead of our other neighborhood. Um, the economy here in Chester County, it is the strongest economy of the 67 counties. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, our biggest challenge right now is that there are three to four vacancies for every person looking for a job, yet at the same time, there are people looking for jobs, so uh, it's about matching them up. So we, we have uh, the strongest economy. We have, uh, I would argue, one of the most diverse economies of any mm -hmm. county in the nation. Uh, you know, folks listening would know you know, some of our name brands. We're home to Vanguard. 
which now is responsible for managing almost $4 trillion. <laughs> the first time I heard that, I thought they made it up. Uh, so we're home to Vanguard. We're home to QVC. Uh, we're home to Sikorsky Helicopters, ArcelorMittal. You know, as we say here in Chester County, uh, Vanguard's one of the largest employers. Everybody knows Vanguard. They're known around the world. You can find Vanguard offices in Sydney, Australia. But we manufacture everything. We manufacture steel. We manufacture potato chips. We manufacture crimpets. We manufacture beer. <laughs> uh, at the same time, uh, we have a biopharma corridor along uh, Malvern and Exton. We're home to places like Janssen, uh, you know, uh, Endo Pharmaceuticals, a number of the Synthes uh, medical devices. In addition, having said all of that, Vanguard, QVC, Crimpets, Tasty Cakes, Helicopters, Biopharma, our largest industry as a segment is still agriculture. We grow 70% of the nation's mushrooms here. Uh, we also have a significant dairy farm presence uh, and, and a significant uh, horse industry here. Uh, we're home to the University of Pennsylvania's Veterinary Hospital. So there are not a lot of other places that you can go to uh, across Pennsylvania and frankly across the country where you can find you know four trillion dollar companies side-by-side -side TV stations home shopping networks steel plants mushrooms mushrooms <laughs> uh, and then all the service industries that support them from tourism to banking to finance it for me it's a wonderful opportunity it's a growing vibrant exciting economy where, where we get uh, a wonderful opportunity to learn and help it grow. Having said that, we do have our challenges. We, we need to find workers. Hmm. Uh, we also need to deal with the traffic because lots of folks from Philadelphia like me are now living here and we need to be able to get a buy on our roads, be they public transit or roads like uh, you know 202 or Route 1. Uh, Lancaster Avenue, we need to find a way to move around. We have to deal with our housing challenges. Uh, but notwithstanding, there are still folks. Uh, we have some pockets of, of folks who are not as successful. And the business community here is very focused on the, the city of Coatesville. We've had some great rebirth stories here in Chester County. Westchester, Phoenixville, Kennett Square, Oxford, Downingtown are back. Uh, all of us are unified in our commitment to bring Coatesville to be the next one of our towns that comes back and is a vibrant, thriving community for people to live in. So uh, with these, the, the successes uh, and the challenges, uh, you've certainly seen a lot of changes uh, politically uh, over the years. I think dramatically so here in Chester. When we look at all the 67 counties, um, I don't know if any is as dramatic as we've seen in Chester. Going from a very uh, strong Republican, if you will, to where um, uh, the, the Democrats have really grown in their registration uh, and certainly their effectiveness at the ballot box. Um, uh, is this a shift, would you say, in the, the, the I guess, the ideologies that uh, people are embracing? I mean, are they, you know, saying, hey, we're done with this, you know, free enterprise capitalism, where we want to move in the direction of, of the democratic socialism? Um, or are these just little tweaks that you're saying? I mean, what, what's ha Is it the social issues guy that, that are happening? Where, uh, what's happening in Chester County? So you're right. I mean, the, the reality is uh, by any benchmark, by any measurement, the uh, elections have shown us that uh, Republicans have been defeated by Democrats. Uh, our state house delegation used to be nine Republicans out of nine. It, it's now six to three. Uh, Democrat. Democrat to mm -hmm. Republican. Um, 
You know, I, I think in any of these cases, there's always a, a macro story and a micro story. The micro story is there were six races where there were u unique features about the Democrat that ran and the Republican who was there uh, or the Republican who retired and who replaced them. Uh, there are unique stories there. But in the macro, yeah, I do think, uh, I do think that as our economy has grown by exponential uh, figures, that in a strange way, the economy, growing jobs, recruiting businesses, tax rates, regulations have gone by the wayside and they've become second, third, or fourth mm -hmm. tier issues. I mean, one of the, one of the luxuries uh, of when you live in a neighborhood where, thank goodness, everybody's working and everybody's 401k is growing by 8 or 10% is you stop worrying about that. And uh, you start, you know, the chamber hasn't. The chamber hasn't worried about it, but I think that I think folks are starting to look to second, you know, putting the economy at second, third, or fourth level, mm -hmm. and and so we're having other discussions about uh, immigration, health care, and I think the focus has shifted to people, uh, to issues that aren't in the forefront here, um, and the answer to your question of is it a shift or a blip, I think I think we're probably on an election cycle or two away for knowing for sure. What is what is the reality is that there have been changes. Uh, and some of those, I think, are because the economy is so good people aren't worried about it. But I also think there are some micro issues in each of some of the local races uh, that lend to it. It will be interesting to see. I will tell you the biggest impact has been on for us is that um, we know that as a chamber we have to do a better job in doing a few things. One is educating these new legislators on the strength and diversity of this economy and not to take it for granted, mm -hmm. and let's, let's not do things that are going to be harmful. And the second is we need to do a better job talking to our members and talking to the community at large about the things that got us here. I think, too, that we fell victim. Uh, as things got to be so good, we began to focus on, well, things are so good, let's go, let's go help Coatesville. Let's rally around this cause without reminding people about the policies, about the people that brought us this economy that's the, the envy of the state. Uh, we'll see where to go next, but we are certainly now much more vigilant, much more vocal in promoting uh, and not taking for granted our strong economy. Well, and of course, being the chamber uh, and irrespective of who is in office, while well, you had all Republicans before, uh, now majority Democrats in the state house, um, you have to communicate with them. Uh, and uh, are they understanding uh, the economy of Chester County? And uh, are you seeing a shift even amongst elected officials in terms of, uh, yeah, the, you've got some of these elements within the Democratic Party that are saying we need to chuck capitalism out the window and embrace, you know, democratic socialism. Um, where, do the, where does the delegation from Chester stand on some of those issues? So, again, I think to pick up on, on the last point, I think what it has caused us to do is to go back as a chamber and make sure that we are at the forefront of defending free enterprise, not just as an idea, but explaining what that means and how that's brought about success, both to our members and the public. But it's now been an opportunity to work with these new legislators and talk to them about what we think has brought us an economy that's the envy of the state. The second is, uh, for us, as you would, you know, before, you know, folks say, well, you had nine Republicans. Yes, but they were nine Republicans. They, you know, they were nine Republicans, but they were men and women. 
and they were drawn to public service through different reasons, mm -hmm. and they had different priorities, and their voting records weren't identical. And the early indication is that even now that we have six Democratic legislators and four Republican, that they were drawn there for nine different reasons. They have mm -hmm. nine sets of values and priorities. Uh, I, I would say that the, nine, the new legislators are very diverse in their priorities, uh, and no two are the same. And we are still in that process of, of making sure that, frankly, we don't look at them as the new legislators or the Democratic legislators or the women legislators, but we're talking to them one-on-one -on -one because we're sitting down with them and telling them about our priorities and listening to theirs, looking for common ground, finding that balance you always do as an advocate, finding common ground to work together and then being very strong and saying, well, this is important to us. You need to understand this on taxes or minimum wage or regulations. We think that this, this will work, this or that will work. We think that this or that will be harmful. Uh, so again, where, where are they ultimately be? We don't know because in many cases um, they're holding office for the first time. So we don't know what their history mm -hmm, is. Mm -hmm. But we're working with them. We've had some very good meetings with some of the new freshman members, some very productive ones. Um, we've done some tours with some of them. So, you know, time will tell. We're only, we're only about eight months into the first term. Uh, but we, again, uh, we will engage, but we will be vigilant because, at least for us, we will not take capitalism and the free market for granted. Well, thank goodness. And uh, Guy, I want to thank you just for your longtime friendship, uh, the work uh, areas that we've worked on together, uh, whether it's helping kids with education, uh, but certainly preserving um, our free enterprise system, because we know that that's what's created the greatest level of, of prosperity, uh, shared prosperity for the most amount of people. So thank you for the work that you're doing here in Chester County and uh, appreciate your joining me here on Brews and Views. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the chances we've had to work together and look forward to continuing to do it as long as we can. Excellent. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. -T -T -E.